Let's talk the neuroscience of itch, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 146, where I aim to arm us with some scientific evidence so we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you doing today? I hope you're doing well, and my goal is to give you something interesting to ponder today. I'm going to share with you some neuroscience behind why we itch and why we scratch. It's actually really an interesting phenomenon, the science behind itching. It's only really been within the last 10 years that we've grasped a good understanding of that. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we do, let me share a foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. Back in 1952, in the journal JSTOR, Jarko and Berkelow wrote about the extensive prevalence of swimmer's itch. The skin eruption, colloquially called swimmer's itch, is technically cercarial or schistosome dermatitis, which means a disease of place. That is, it can be acquired only at certain locations and is not directly communicable from person to person, meaning it's not contagious from person to person. The clinical presentation of swimmer's itch is pretty simple. A few minutes after being in a particular body body of water, the swimmer experiences a sensation of itching. A rash develops but commonly disappears with the itching within an hour or so. After a quiescent period or more, the itching and rash reappears and continues for about a week or longer. Swimmer's itch is caused by the penetration of the skin by the microscopic larvae of several species of worms. Scientists in the 1950s realized that a high degree of concentration of swimmer's itch existed within the areas of the Pleistocene glaciers. Throughout large parts of this area, one of the most striking effects of glaciation or glaciers is the amount of lakes that were formed by uneven glacial erosion and deposition. For the migratory waterfowl of North America, glacial lakes and swamps furnish the best breeding grounds for swimmer's itch. Traditionally, nearly half of these birds use the Mississippi Flyway, which funnels from their summer habitats in the Canadian Arctic, the Prairie Provinces in Ontario, going south through the states south and west of the Great Lakes, or some of the birds summer along the Mississippi Valley to the wintering grounds of the Gulf Coast. So this is primarily where swimmer's itch is. And I grew up hearing about swimmer's itch quite a bit because I grew up in the provinces of Manitoba and Canada where the glaciers had carved out the lakes. Snails have also been implicated as being hosts to the swimmer's itch parasite. Sometimes counties will add copper sulfate to the water to reduce the number of snails that can carry the host. 
Scientists recommend avoiding vegetation in the water as the highest concentration of parasites is often seen near vegetation. It is recommended to shower shortly after swimming as well. The skin irritation usually lasts a few days and can be soothed with cold compresses, anti-inflammatory lotions like hydrocortisone, and sometimes an antihistamine. Today, swimmer's itch is less common with our knowledge on how to reduce it in bodies of water and how a simple shower shortly after swimming can prevent it too. So how a bit of knowledge can change the course of an illness is so fascinating, isn't it? Now, how about we get into the core takeaways of today's topic on the neuroscience of itch. Itch is a phenomenon we have all experienced, but we have yet to fully understand the science behind it. We realize that itch may be the result of irritants on the skin, could be the result of autoimmune conditions like psoriasis, could be from side effects of medications, the result of conditions like liver disease and kidney disease, but itch can also be related to psychiatric illness and drug intake as well. Did you know that scratching can be contagious? That seeing another person scratch can activate our mirror neurons for us to scratch as well and to do the same. This is thought to be a survival mechanism. Did you know that scratching an itch works much like talking louder than another person in the same microphone? This is the analogy that I used to describe the science behind itch in this episode. Have you heard of phantom limb pain or phantom limb scratch or itch in people who have had a limb removed from an accident and surgery? I go into the neuroscience of that and more in today's episode. So now let's get into those scientific details. Itch is a very complex phenomenon that spans the fields of immunology, dermatology, neuroscience, and behavioral psychology. Itch is generally an unpleasant, tingling feeling on the skin that provokes us to scratch the area. Sometimes this is related to something touching our skin, like a loose hair or a bug. It can be something related to a bug bite or skin condition. And sometimes it's related to something neurobiological. We can have an acute itch, or we can experience a chronic, lasting, and frustrating itch. For the longest time, scientists did not fully or precisely understand what caused itch, how the signal of itch was detected and sent. But over the last several years, scientists have really appreciated the mechanisms behind it. So, let's get into those details. In the journal Physiological Reviews in 2020, Chevik, Bass, and Lerner wrote a review on the neuroscience of itch. Now, there are sensory fibers in our skin, specifically in the epidermis of our skin. And irritants like chemicals and lotions, perfumes, bug bites, etc., can activate these sensory fibers in the epidermis of our skin. Inflammatory conditions of the skin may also arise from autoimmunity, such as in the condition psoriasis. Irritants or autoimmunity can cause the recruitment of immune cells in the skin that can activate the sensory neurons to release neuropeptides that contribute to itching and scratching. Messages are sent from these sensory fibers in our skin along our spinal cord to the thalamus of our brain. And then the thalamus in our brain interprets these messages as itch. So common ways to reduce chronic itch is to try to protect the skin barrier, to make it more resilient from these environmental irritants, so to speak. This can include hydrating the skin with a water-based serum or water-based lotion, 
then applying a barrier to the skin thereafter, such as a lipid-based lotion that has oil or shea butter, for example. And I have two episodes dedicated to evidence-based strategies for skin care, all the way back in episode 19 and in episode 20. So if that topic interests you on the scientific evidence-based strategies for skin care, then I recommend you going back to episode 19 and 20. Now you might think that there is just one or two categories of itch, but there are actually several. There is an acute itch, which they define as someone experiencing an itch for less than six weeks. Chronic itch is when it lasts for more than six weeks. But then there's puritoceptive itch, which is itch that is associated with a compound known to cause an itch, like histamines, bug bites, chemicals and perfumes and lotions, compounds that people are allergic to. But then there are some interesting categories. For example, psychogenic itch that is having a psychosomatic or psychiatric origin. For example, individuals who have substance use disorder with methamphetamines or individuals living with schizophrenia sometimes exhibit signs of itchy skin and delusions of bugs or parasites crawling on their skin. There's also another category called neuropathic itch. This is an association with damaged neurons. This, for example, might happen following an infection with herpes simplex virus 1 or HSV1. This may also happen as a result of diabetes, in which small fibers in the nervous system become damaged. And sometimes when those neurons are damaged, they actually can become hypersensitive, increasing signals of itch, for example. Now, contagious itch is an interesting phenomenon that we might feel itchy and scratch simply because we see someone else scratching. And seeing someone else scratch may cause us to feel compelled to also scratch and mirror their actions. We've actually looked at this phenomenon in monkeys. They would watch the behavior of two monkeys interacting, and they noted that mirror neurons were identified initially within the ventral premotor area when monkeys conducted a certain movement in observation of the same movement in their partner. So why would we mimic someone else scratching? Why is that action contagious? Well, it is believed that itch may be due to survival mechanisms innate in our biology. If we observe someone scratching, it could indicate that they are exposed to insects or irritants in the environment, and the scratch is to remove it from the skin, so to speak. So we respond naturally and unconsciously by scratching as well in order to prevent something like an insect or the irritant in the environment from affecting us too. There's also itch that can be related to increased circulation of certain compounds in the blood. For example, uremia, which is a raised level in the blood of urea and other nitrogen compounds that are normally eliminated by the kidneys. But our blood urea nitrogen could be elevated if we consume a diet very high in protein, but this is more so seen when individuals have reduced kidney functioning or kidney insufficiency or kidney failure. So if someone struggles with chronic itch, perhaps reducing the amount of protein in the diet, particularly if they are living with kidney disease, may potentially be of benefit in reducing the amount of itch as it's been associated with nitrogen compounds in the blood and protein is broken down into nitrogen. Another condition that might lead to chronic itch is cholestasis. Individuals have elevated bile salts in their blood due to the buildup of bile acid in the liver. That is what cholestasis is. This might happen when an individual is living with liver disease or gallbladder disease. 
We may also see this in patients living with specific congenital heart diseases that underwent surgery for Fontan circulation, for example. In some of my own work using metabolomics, we believe that increased bile salts in the blood might induce itch because they can increase the production of circulating oxylipins. And we know that oxylipins play a very important role in the inflammation and immune reaction of the skin. So in this particular scenario, if an individual is living with liver disease or heart disease or kidney disease, and they are, they are suffering with chronic itch, treating the primary condition of liver disease and gallbladder disease and heart disease is likely to be a benefit to treat the source of the chronic itch as opposed to trying to treat the itch itself. So for example, reducing the amount of circulating bile salts in the blood could be of benefit in this scenario. Reducing the amount of circulating nitrogen in the blood by reducing protein intake might be of benefit. So why would we scratch exactly? Like why is that our response when we have an itch? How does a scratch temporarily resolve that uncomfortable feeling of itch? So let's get into the interesting science behind that. Scratching our skin can reduce the itch for a couple of reasons. The obvious one is that scratching our skin can remove an irritant, like a strand of hair, a bug, for example, it's causing that tickle or itch. But here is a different observation. The sensory fibers that are in our epidermis that sense itch can be the C fibers. And what's really interesting is that the C fibers also have the ability to respond to pain. So when we scratch our skin, it induces a mild pain, which overrides the signal on the C fibers for itch. So the pain signal blocks the itch signal on the same fibers, so to speak. Let me give an analogy. Let's imagine that we're speaking into a microphone and that sound is being transmitted into a speaker. Then someone else comes up to the microphone and they start to speak loudly into our same microphone. So now there's competition for the sound of our voices going into the microphone, and the other person who's speaking slightly louder may drown out our voice that the speakers are now only projecting the other person's voice and not ours. Well, our C fibers in our skin are like the microphone, picking up information, sensing the environment, and transmitting that information via our spinal cord to our brain. Now the mild pain of scratching, so to speak, drowns out the signal of itch. Another intriguing connection between pain and itch is in the context of pain medication use like opioids. Pain medication like opioids sometimes have the side effect of itch because they are quieting down the pain signals, therefore allowing the itch signals to become louder and better heard. Withdrawal from drugs like alcohol and opioids may also induce feelings of itch, interestingly, as the C fibers in the skin may rebound and become more sensitive. So more pain and more itch may occur in withdrawal of drug use too. Scientists have conducted clinical studies using functional magnetic resonance imaging to understand how the brain encodes itch in individuals that are living with chronic itch. They took a group of people with chronic itch and a group without. Then they applied saline or histamine to their skin. Now histamine we know will irritate the skin and induce an inflammatory allergic immune response, which will send a signal to the thalamus in the brain to scratch. Now, when patients battling with chronic itch, the cingulate and prefrontal cortex of their brain was more actively recruited compared with the control group. The periaqueductal gray region of the brain is often thought of in 
the context of feeling aggressive and responding to a threat in our life. Interestingly, this same brain region, the periaqueductal gray, is activated during scratching and is considered as an itch-suppressing brain region. This makes me wonder then if there's a tie between aggression, threatening stimuli that scare us, and scratching, because all of these things are encoded by the same brain region. So maybe that's why we may scratch unconsciously if we feel uncomfortable in a situation, like if we feel threatened in some way. It's an interesting thing to ponder anyway. Drugs like methamphetamine or meth may result in the feeling of things crawling under the skin and the delusion of bugs crawling under the skin. As a result, individuals taking methamphetamine may scratch other skin repeatedly, leaving it scratched up and scarred. So why does this happen? Well, there are a few theories. Methamphetamine can lead to a high release of neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin in the brain and in the body. And we understand that actually serotonin in the skin can also induce itch. They've shown some studies that when scientists or physicians have injected serotonin directly into the skin of humans and into the skin of mice, the initial reaction is to scratch. It's very itchy. As such, one would assume that anything that increases serotonin in the body or in the skin might have the ability to induce itch. Well, not surprisingly, medications that can increase serotonin, like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, this is a very common class of antidepressant medications to treat depression, they can improve mood by increasing the amount of serotonin that stays active in the synaptic cleft for longer. A very common side effect of these antidepressant medications is chronic itch. So there seems to be a tie between serotonin and itch in the skin. Kimsey in 2016 wrote that many different conditions have the symptoms of chronic itch. This includes alcohol use disorder, anemia, lupus, diabetes, liver disease, kidney disease, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism, and many more. Why this occurs can be specific to each condition, and many of these might be related to a group of molecules called oxylipins, which is a group of molecules that I study extensively. We appreciate that this group of molecules, oxylipins, such as the prostaglandins and leukotrienes, play a very important role in our skin itching as part of the immune and inflammatory response of our skin. You know like when you have a rash on your skin and it reddens and feels warm? Well, that's mediated by oxylipins. So a steroidal cream like hydrocortisone is meant to reduce that redness and that warmth and that itch because it's blocking oxylipins. It's blocking that inflammatory immune reaction that's locally happening in the skin. So that's how steroidal creams can help with itch because it reduces the influx of oxylipins to the skin. And so part of the reason why a lot of these conditions are associated with itch is because oxylipins may be elevated as well with a lot of these conditions. Now, another intriguing topic in the context of itch is phantom itch. This is related to phantom limb pain. This is when an individual has a limb or a portion of their limb removed due to an accident and or surgery. Yet, despite the limb no longer being there, they still feel pain and itch where the limb used to be. This has been a troubling phenomenon for patients and and scientists that is yet to be fully understood, but it has been proposed that pain memories established prior to the amputation 
are powerful elicitors of phantom limb pain. So scientists believe that that long-lasting, aversive, uncomfortable signal and pain memory associated with that limb might lead to long-term changes in the connections and circuits between the spinal column and the brain. So if an individual, for example, had a very painful, tragic accident that led to the loss of the limb, that could have created a very powerful connection along the spinal column to the brain to elicit that pain signal. And scientists believe that even though the limb is gone, that pain signal is still there and present and sending that signal. It is also thought that a surgery from amputation may change the nerves at the site. It may make the nerves more sensitive and to be reorganized. And that information can feed into the nervous system and trigger feelings of itch and pain as well. And it's a really interesting concept called the cortical body map. Sedan and Grossman in the journal Brain Communications in 2020 talk about our cortical brain map. The brain homunculus, it's been called. Imagine an image of a small human on the cortex of our brain. This is a concept that the signals sent between the body and the brain are spatially organized in a way that is representative on our brain. For example, when patients were undergoing brain surgery decades ago, surgeons would electrically stimulate particular portions of the brain to see which part of the brain spoke to which body parts. This created a body map on the brain. But one of the significant findings that the scientists noted was that the spatial distribution of body parts is not proportional to the surface area of the body part, part itself. For example, the face and hands are largely overrepresented, meaning that large portions of the brain control the face and hands, while the abdomen and legs occupy disproportionately smaller areas on the cortex of the brain. And this is likely because our hands, for example, require so much dexterity and so much neural input as opposed to our legs. So when scientists have drawn the brain homunculus, they call it, meaning small creature, small humanoid, they draw them disproportionately with very large heads and very large hands to represent the fact that large parts of our brain control our head and hands. And they draw the homunculus, the small humanoid, with very small abdomen and small legs because small proportions of our brain regulate our abdomen and legs. So bringing this back to phantom limb pain or phantom limb itch, when someone has a limb removed from an accident or surgery, this might be targeted by targeting the associated area on the brain homunculus. So in individuals with very severe phantom limb pain or phantom limb itch that doesn't go away with time, surgeons have performed brain surgery to remove or lesion the part on the brain homunculus that normally would represent where the limb used to be. And that would eliminate the phantom limb pain or the phantom limb itch. Such an interesting concept, isn't it? So that is a wrap, my people scientist army, the neuroscience of itch. Did you know before this episode that there are different types of itch? For example, itch that's brought on by medications, by drugs of abuse, by having too high levels of urea or nitrogen or bile salts in the blood. It can be a result of nerve damage or related to psychiatric conditions like schizophrenia. Itch is sensed by the sensory fibers in our skin that send a signal via our spinal cord to the thalamus of our brain, and that tells us, hey, this is itchy. The periaqueductal gray in the thalamus can send a signal to scratch that will alleviate that feeling of itch. And the reason why scratching may resolve the feeling of itch is because the mild pain of scratching overrides the signal on the C-fibers. 
like the analogy I gave of the microphone and two people trying to speak into that microphone at once. Eventually, the quieter person will lose out and the louder person's voice will be projected into the speakers. So the more we scratch, the louder the signal gets to reduce the signal of itch on that C fiber. That's why sometimes even slapping the skin can reduce itch too, simply because the pain signal is overriding that itch signal. This is also why individuals taking painkillers like opioids may experience itch as a side effect too, because the pain signal is being quieted. Phantom limb itch is a thing that people can feel when they have had a limb removed. They feel itch where their limb used to be. That is because the neural signals might still be sent in the nearby sensory fibers to the brain. Surgeons have gone in and knowing the knowledge of the brain homunculus, knowing which region of the brain speaks to which part of the body, if they can lesion or remove that very small section, they have been able to eliminate the phantom limb pain. But with time and rehabilitation today, typically phantom limb itch and phantom limb pain dissipate and they don't have to do this type of surgery anymore. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that it was interesting and informative for you. I know that I found it pretty interesting too. Make sure to follow me on social media where I share some extra tidbits and the papers that I cite in each episode. And if you want to buy me a coffee to say, hey, thanks for the episode, you can do so via the links in the description box to this show. I hope that you all have a wonderful two weeks and I look forward to meeting you back here in two weeks time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.